Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 40 for season 2, episode 14, Such Sweet Sorrow, part 2 of 2. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer Ken Gagney. And I am Captain Sabriel Maston, and welcome aboard our ship of pleasure. Oh wait, no, that's love. <laughs> I think we've used that opening. I think we have, actually. Are we running short on material here? <laughs> you know, after 40 some odd episodes, you know, it just who can think of any new stories? Well, it is the season finale, and they've pretty much used up everything that they had going into this season. So why not do a little recycling? Oh, my gosh. Oh what my a God. season finale this was. <laughs> can I tell you how I felt watching it the first time? Tell me. I walked away so disappointed. <laughs> Oh no! And what? Uh, we'll get to there. And in time, well, having after some time passed, I feel better about it. But walking away, I was just like, "Oh, okay, I guess that's it." <laughs> <laughs> wow, <laughs> a lot of talk and not a lot of follow through. Yeah, uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. Okay. Uh, I, feel like the, I don't feel like starting off with that is the best way to start the episode today. Well, I read a director's commentary on the season finale, the two-parter, how he said it's basically like a feature-length film episode of Discovery. And the first half was very dialogue and emotion heavy, and the second half act was very action-oriented. So they were very different episodes, even though it was two parts to one story. I thought that was an interesting divide. It, and it's, it's true, because this finale, wow, there was a lot of action. Maybe in that context, watching the two, one right after the other, immediately would have changed my initial viewing, but I don't know that it would have, and I'll get to that in a bit. Okay, well, shall we try a little bit of a recap? Yeah, I want you to get us started. Whew. So these recaps, they're not scripted. I'm just going by memory. So let me see if I can remember everything that happened. Oh, my goodness. So they start their battle with Section 31, and which has tons of little ships, just like the Enterprise and the Discovery do. They get the time suit ready for Burnham to pilot, during which Stamets gets grievously injured and went, goes to sickbay, where Culber is still there. He didn't go to Enterprise, and he says... Paul, my home is with you. Oh, let's see. Uh, Spock and Burnham jump out of the ship and go to a safe distance where she can open a wormhole, in which time Leland transports onto Discovery to try to get the sphere data, which Georgiou has hidden, and they duke it out, and eventually she lures him into the spore room where she has magnetized it, just like Gant died a couple of weeks ago, and she magnetizes it again, and Leland dies. But that's not the end of the episode. In the meantime, Spock and Burnham are trying to open the wormhole to the future, and they can't, and it turns out that's because... When the Kelpians and the Klingons show up to help in the battle, they realize that they need to go back before they can go forward. And so Burnham opens the time gate to go into the past and initiate the five signals they've seen so far. And then when she comes to the present, she can open the time gate into the future. Discovery goes into the future. The Enterprise stays behind. Control is neutralized. Uh, and they decide that with Starfleet, they will never again make any mention of Discovery, the Spore Drive, or any of its crew in order to preserve history. Meanwhile, 
discovery we presume is somewhere 950 years in the future because they send one more signal to let them know that yes they made it to terra elysium just fine <laughs> oh 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 and there was an unexploded torpedo in the enterprise <laughs> that cornwell put down the blast door to save everybody and in doing so sacrificed herself so that happened yeah. too <laughs> <laughs> but we have oh. to go back back to the future doc no back to the past (laughs) (laughs) it's true it's true wow okay so where do we start there there was a lot there and it was very out of order i apologize for that oh that's usually like how my storytelling goes so it was natural (laughs) Uh. i kind of feel like marlin the dad from finding nemo who's like oh oh, i forgot to tell you there's this one part that's really important let me go back and yeah i'm just yeah storytelling uh (laughs) Go on. So what do you want to talk about this week, Captain? Okay, so I... Okay, so a lot of this... What do I want to start? Okay, so during the heat of battle for good share this episode, which is cool because it was like the longest battle we've ever seen in an episode of Star Trek. I mean, in its own right, it's, it's history right there. It's kind of neat. I loved that in this incarnation of Star Trek, they have kept so much more of humanity that you know would be there, but they have never shown in Star Trek before. And what I'm talking about here is the snark people have when they are in stressful situations. Uh, <laughs> like, um, so like, like when um, Jet Reno is done with the time crystal charging it up and she's going to head down to go give it to, to Michael. And so was like, get going. And she's like, I'm going, I'm going, get off my ass, sir. Get off my ass, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and traditionally in Star Trek, there's a lot of propriety even in those scenarios. And I think that under pressure, people might just be a little frayed around the edges. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know I definitely am. Like Dr. Pollard, Sarah was like, do your best. And she's like, no, because now is a perfect time to do a half-assed job. Right. <laughs> she mutters to herself as she walks away. I loved it. I loved it. Everybody's doing their best, even when they know it's not good enough. <laughs> You had also started by talking about this being the longest action sequence in Star Trek history. Uh, I didn't time it, but it did occur to me that this is probably the most complex battle scene I've ever seen, just due to how many individual ships there were. I would say the only time we've really seen this kind of dogfighting in Star Trek was with the Dominion War, which had some amazing battles, because it was also during DS9 that Star Trek switched from using physical models to CGI. I think we really saw an improvement with that change, especially with the little Defiant zipping all around everywhere. This episode had even more characters at play, but I was a little disappointed that for the most part, Discovery and Enterprise were sitting ducks. So that kind of goes back to what I was talking about last week, where Star Trek has traditionally not, or has traditionally done like the battleship approach for naval combat, where you just have like two big ships flying around, fighting each other slowly. And here we went to like all dogfighting, uh, and these two just kind of hovering, which is something completely different than we've seen in Star Trek before. So I can understand why it feels jarring. This is what they did here is probably more, I'm going to quote, realistic in how starship combat would be uh, but it's completely different than we've seen in star trek till now i remember watching season four of enterprise and when the romulans had that ship that could project a hologram of any other kind of ship that thing was so nimble perhaps because it was being psychically controlled from a distance but you rarely saw that kind of agility in outer space and yet it was a big ship and so i I've always hoped ever since then that we might see large ships making nimble maneuvers 
since then. And we saw that with little shifts, definitely in this episode. I'm not disappointed about that in the slightest, although it was sometimes for me a little bit hard to know whose side everybody was on because there was so much flying around at once. Uh, so you said like, so this is a complex battle. And to me, like the number of ships add a complexity, but I felt like this battle, like we saw no change from the start of it to the end of it in combat out in space. I was kind of disappointed in that because like they're going on for like 30 minutes, like battles are going on, but we never see any progress. They're making all these talks about tactics and whatever like that. We don't see any of them flirt out. We don't see how these battles are cha- the battlefield is changing over all this time. And even when the Klingons and Kelpians appear, nothing seems to actually change combat wise and things are still just as dire. It just felt to, how it felt like it just didn't capitalize on all this militarizing and strategizing and graphics for the fight here. Like I want to see like, okay, cool. These three section 31 ships are this side of sex space is there's fewer, there's less combat going on or you're like, Oh, we can't, we got to make sure the right side of the ship isn't facing any enemies. I, I don't know. It's just complex because there was lots of moving pieces, but complex at combat, it felt very much a, this is just a background to add tension and we're not going to focus on it despite commonly going back to it as transitions from scene to scene. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're right. The military strategy aspect of this battle was somewhat lacking. The only metric we had by which to track the progress of the battle was everybody's shield levels. You know, it's going down, it's going back up, etc. Even when Poe was out there and she gave them a strategy for cutting through the enemy shields and Pike changed his maneuvers as a result of that, we never really saw anything as a result, in my opinion. Yeah, we didn't see like, oh, hey, they were able to fight off this wave of attack squadrons because of this knowledge. Like, it's cool. I, I, it's cool character growth for Poe, but it didn't add anything to the story. And, you know, you could argue that the fight wasn't the story. It was just the set piece for it. And so that's why they didn't focus on much of the combat. And I'm all for that. It just felt like a rough, I don't see dichotomy, but it just felt like a it didn't align with what the information they were giving it to us at the beginning of the episode. Pike's all like, the squadron do that. That squadron do this. We're going to do the thing. And by the end, it was just like, okay, you kind of covered that. How about this? It's strange for a discovery to focus on something that wasn't important later. And I think they did that here. They focused a lot of attention on some stuff that didn't really matter by the end of the episode to push the episode along. How about that? You could argue that what is happening on the ships is more important than what's happening between the ships. That doesn't mean that we can't have both, though. Right. And I feel like usually Discovery's writers are much better about only keeping the important stuff that we need to know in the limelight. And here I think they did fine. I think it's interesting information. It's stuff that would happen. It's just, it didn't didn't make it all tied in together. It kind of left me feeling like, okay, I guess that's cool. I mean, cool phasers. Like, oh my god, it was really neat seeing these massive, like they they would zoom in sometimes in the combat and you'd see like the phasers from the starships were massive beams versus like the little tiny plink plinks from the tiny things. And you got to see the original series phasers firing and with the original sounds, it was so cool. That was amazing. It was cool fan service. But in the end, it just felt like the combat overall was just kind of there as background. It's a testament to your observation and persuasion skills that this is something I was not aware of when I saw the episode, and now I am. And as a result, I like the episode less. Thanks. 
sorry to do that to you. Uh, like, I mean, yeah, it's just like cool, shine, cool, shiny lasers and vasers, woo, and but it just felt weak, not bad, just weak. Sure, okay, I can see that. Speaking of the battle, what did you think about when the Klingon showed up? I mean, that was, that was really cool. I was, I, I was very stunned to see Ash Tyler on the bridge of the Klingon uh, of the Chancellor's ship. Lorel's here, but I mean, it was cool. But in the end, when after they arrived, we saw a cool shot of the D seven cruisers just beating stuff up, like one Section Thirty one ship, and that's like the entirety of the combat was the initial coming in, one shot of them beating up a Section Thirty one ship, and that's it. It seemed like not change the course of battle at all. <laughs> yeah, I was not all that surprised when they showed up for two reasons. One, as we discussed last week, I suspected that Ashtar was going somewhere to influence this battle. He wasn't just escaping to live another day. And so I wasn't surprised when he showed up again. And also, unfortunately, on my Reddit homepage, somebody had posted a story with the headline, loved the season finale, wish the Klingons had played a bigger role. Oh, so you got spoiled. I was like, oh, you shouldn't put spoilers right in the title, for Pete's sake. People are, this, this, they're supposed to on Reddit, the proper reticate is to tag it appropriately. And that's unfortunate that that happened to you. I'm sorry. Thank you. Also, however, it took me a while to appreciate the context of their arrival. Yes, Laurel has been a pretty decent Klingon all season, even helping the Discovery get the time crystal from Borith. But we also have to remember that just a year ago, Starfleet and the Klingons were at war. And, you know, so many people died on both sides. And here they are battling together. I mean, that is a huge turnaround in their relations. And granted, when Pike said, glad to see you show up with some friends, and Laurel said, that's not the word I would use, but we're always happy to fight for the Klingon future. I'm like, okay, so they're not friends. That's that's legit. That's fair, given that... You know, when Laurel was introduced to this whole series, she was a bad person doing bad things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they can see past that to fight a common enemy toward a common goal. Yeah, uh, frenemies. (laughs) Frenemies. I love it. (laughs) By by the way, remind me, in season one, did we ever hear the Klingon say it is a good day to die? I don't. I was thinking that, too, actually. I don't think we did because I and I don't think we did. But we maybe have in like the first episode or so it's been a while i was just whether they did or not i was very happy to hear it here when i when i heard that i did a big fist pump in the air i was like yeah go get them it's awesome <laughs> i love klingons in combat like, like yeah i'm bleeding yeah cool <laughs> <laughs> and then everybody else is like how dare you make my chancellor bleed i will kill you <laughs> it's like she hit her head on the chair come on <laughs> And oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, ooh, what an injury. I have a glorious injury from this chair. <laughs> this chair is a worthy foe. <laughs> also, the Klingons showed up alongside the Kelpians. Yeah, I I was well, when they showed up, I was like, okay. <laughs> like uh it was just a way to get Saru's sister here to say goodbye. I was like, okay, yeah, it makes sense in two months or so they figured out how to use some bowel ships and yeah, they seem to evolve pretty darn quickly. They just didn't evolve. They just used the technology the bull had left behind. Oh, right. I got I got that. But just going from being a almost entirely like agricultural society to now you're piloting a spaceship through outer space, even if it is confiscated technology from another species, I got that. But their mastery of it came very quickly. 
yeah, in a few months. Oh, guess we don't know if it's mastery or not. There's only like seven ships from them, and uh, <laughs> it's very tiny. And but I was thinking, like, like you know, it could, you know, like how Saru's attitude started changing once these gangly were gone. Like maybe they're all like people are much more open to exploring things without their gangly telling them that everything is scary. Yes, much more open-minded, much more fearless. That's true. One more thing I loved about his sister showing up. Correct me if I'm wrong, but was she wearing a hoodie? Uh, it was the Kelpian hoodies that they were wearing before. Well, in the context of flying a spaceship, it looked awesome. I'm all for it. I love space hoodies. The other thing, though, is that when she showed up, she's like, brother, I got your message and we're here to fight. We met up with the Klingons along the way. And at first I thought, wait a minute, what message? And this goes back to what you and I were discussing last week was everybody sent final messages to their loved oh. ones. you know. And you and I were trying to figure out where are those messages going to go? Is it just going to go into the Discovery black box in case the ship gets destroyed? Because they have no subspace communication. So how did that message get to the Kelpian homeworld? No, because I just rewatched this an hour ago. She said, we got our message from one of your crewmates, not your message. I, I could have sworn that that was they were already on their way. And one of your crewmen told us to form up with the Klingons and arrive together. Now you have me question myself. But yeah, so. Because she said to Saru, I got your message. See, I, I don't remember that. So I'll take your word for it. I did rewatch that scene because I found that confusing because he was not expecting to see her. And she says, brother, I got your message. And we met up with the Klingons along the way. Gotcha. And I was like, how did she get your message? Very confusing. Spock pointed out that one of the reasons that they evolved the Kelpians with that signal in the first place was to get them to show up to this battle, which means the Kelpians were a deciding factor in the battle with Section 31, which seems incredibly unlikely. I mean, I guess every little bit helps, but really? All seven or eight, you know, this very small amount of fighters, unless there was a huge uh, set of attack squadron that we did not see. Uh, yeah, they had a very small part in this battle, but uh, you know, in the heat of battle, sometimes you don't choose your words the best. You're telling your commander to get off my ass, <laughs> right? But I mean, it, it was the Kelp it was the Kelpian's arrival that gave Spock that moment of introspection, uh -huh. where he says to Burnham, "No, right now, precisely now." You yeah. know, if it weren't for the Kelpian showing up, he wouldn't have put two and two together and said, "We need to go back to the past first. They must have done something off camera. Because <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I what did they really contribute? <laughs> I Also, I didn't count how many ships there were, so I'm surprised to hear there were only seven or eight. I thought there were more, but... There, yeah, there might have been more off camera, but but when she showed up, they had a show a shot of just a very small attack squadron flying around. So it's possible there was much more uh, that we just didn't see. Because, you know, it zoomed out for most of the bot combat in this anyway. Right, and back to my point of there just being so many moving parts, it was hard for me to keep track of anything, so I, I have no idea how many there were. Another big part of this battle that we saw coming in two different flash-forwards last week was the unexploded torpedo that lodged itself in the Enterprise. And I gotta start by asking, how did that torpedo get through the Enterprise's shield? I remember they made a comment, and I can't recall exactly now. Um... I feel like Section 31 would have used shield piercing torpedoes more frequently in this battle if they had easy access to them yeah i think yeah i'm pretty sure there was an explanation i just don't remember right now see see sometimes that sometimes i don't keep on to those little things like like i i accept the plot for what it is at some points and or I mean, this might have been honestly a part where i tuned out because this battle was going on so long <laughs> yeah it was basically an hour-long battle that's true 
Let's talk about Cornwell's sacrifice, though. We knew, or at least I knew, because I'd read it somewhere, that two main characters were going to be leaving at the end of the season. I assumed it would be Pike, because we know how his story ends. He goes back to the Enterprise. It never occurred to me that the other person who would be leaving would be Cornwell. I had not heard that. So, yeah, I didn't think they would kill off the character. I I really liked Cornwell um, as a character. You know, it sucks to see her go, but uh, in the end, it was, like I said, this episode, I walked away going, okay. I didn't feel the drama of the tor- torpedo. Like, I think they were trying to push. It didn't feel like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, we got to do a thing. We didn't see their struggle with trying to do the thing. They said this, they had a struggle. They tried plans A and B, and they failed. But I didn't feel the tension before her death rising. We had seen her and Pike interact for a while, and I kind of forgot that they had some kinship friendship and until the very end when she's like or he's like uh bye cat and she's like bye pike or chris <laughs> calling each other first names it just felt like i didn't feel attention and i'm very sad the character's gone but i just the way she died it just didn't feel fitting i guess i feel like the crew of the enterprise is cooler under pressure than the crew of the discovery a lot of that snarky attitude you were talking about we tend to see on discovery whereas enterprise whether it's Pike or Cornwell, maybe a little bit less so, number one. But Pike and Cornwell, they were like, I felt like they were resigned to the fact that this thing was going to blow up, so let's do our best. And as a result, that may have come across as less tense. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that's a perfect way to go out when you're in that situation, uh, when you know it's going to be that way. Like I, I'm not upset with how she died. It just, yeah, I, I can totally get what you're going for, and I can agree to that. Not as deep cutting as I wish it would have been. I do have to wonder, who puts emergency manual releases only on the inside of the door and not on the outside? Yeah, and those blast doors are very strong to withstand a torpedo five feet away. Yeah, I mean, Pike just stood there watching it, and I'm thinking to myself, well, gee, why didn't they just make the entire hull out of this material, for Pete's sake? Yeah, yeah, maybe they did, and the speed of it just... (laughs) <laughs> no, it just felt like, really? Uh, that little of a blast? I mean, blast doors are supposed to be stronger, but that's also supposed to be thicker. <laughs> yeah, this one little door that is partly shut, if they can just shut it the whole way, will save, well, not the entire Enterprise, because we saw a big chunk taken out of it. And of course, Cornwall passed away. But wow, that is a lot of the Enterprise riding on a little door. Yeah, well, apparently it was a very, very tough little door. <laughs> little i gotta say though when she just turned around put her hands behind her back and just stood there waiting for the torpedo to explode wow i don't know that i could have been that controlled facing my own death for me uh, well i I just got chilled thinking about that myself um to me that was when i saw that i was like yes that was exactly what i would do (laughs) is it yeah because i for me personally i don't stress about the things i can't control very much and to me, I felt like that is such an amazing thing. And I think I would do the same. Just waiting for it to happen. You're a stronger person than I am because I would have stayed facing Chris and I would have I would have been saying, don't go. Don't leave me alone. And I would I would have kept my back to that torpedo. I would have kept my <laughs> eyes on Chris. I wouldn't have, I would have wanted him to be the last thing I saw. I would not wish to see the pain, him to see the pain on my eyes as I'm dying in that split second. I would not want to see him see my face 
uh, as I'm being killed. I think that would be much more traumatic to him. I agree with that. That's true. That's why that's how I view it. I don't know that I would have been that selfless in that scenario. I think if I'm <laughs> about to die, then I get my last wish, and I'm not going to be thinking about somebody else. Yeah, I, it, it, totally, totally valid and fair. They're just uh... right. And again, I'm not saying this is what Cornwell would have done. You and I are talking about what we would have done yeah, and comparing yeah. it to Cornwell. She's a very she's made of much sterner stuff than I think either of us, and apparently, especially me. <laughs> uh, before we get away from this scene, the scene did show us something. I we almost could have just breezed right over. What's that? Well, the torpedoes lodged in there. We saw the Enterprise has R two units. Like, Ah, you mean the little <laughs> robots that were scurrying around on the hull? Yeah, they call them like DOT-7, like Department of Transportation 7 or something like that. But it, they're basically <laughs> two D2, uh, R2 units flying around trying to take care of the ship. But I'm like, wait a minute. this. I, well, while I was watching it again this morning, I thought, wait a minute. This now makes canon why R2-D2 was in the debris field over Vulcan in Star <laughs> Trek 2009. <laughs> it's true. Uh, if you didn't know, there is a little nod since Industrial Light and Magic did the, uh, the 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 CGI for Star Trek 2009. There is an R2D2 floating um, over, and it goes right past the main viewer, I think. Kind of like in First Contact, when the Borg cube explodes and all the Starfleet vessels are flying away, one of them is the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, they, it was kind of neat to see. Like this is the first time we've seen in Star Trek that they have these little R2 like, R2 units going around trying to repair the whole well. Things are going on. But that made me wonder, why couldn't they have just gotten one of those drones to pull the manual release lever? That was a question uh, people posed on the internet as well. <laughs> we don't know the strength. We don't know anything about them, pretty much, other than their existence. Yeah, and to that point, it was surprising that they showed up at all, because they were almost meaningless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just someone who had a cool idea and was like, I like Star Wars, I like Star Trek. What if we put these together? Now kiss. <laughs> <laughs> You got chocolate in my peanut butter. <laughs> you know, I loved the exchange in that torpedo scene where Pike... Well, first of all, Cornwell said, Chris, your story doesn't end here, and I think you know that. I don't think Cornwell knows that. I don't think Cornwell or anybody has any idea what Pike saw in the time crystal, right? Yeah, I don't think so either. When I was watching it a second time, I was like, well, I guess it's possible he put it in some kind of log or they had a drink or something like that. But I don't... Honestly, I don't think she knew. I think she's, it's just one of those, like, you're a captain, you have much more to live for. I'm an admiral. I've done all the things. I've done my duty. See ya. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with that interpretation. I love Pike's little smirk when he says, if I'm fated for something else, then this torpedo can't explode while I'm here. And then she says, how many lives are you willing to put at risk if you're wrong? And he stops smirking. He's like, oh, you're right. Oh, it was a great scene because the camera pan, like, he's smirking. And as she finishes her sentence, the camera like goes behind her head. And then when it's on the other side, the smirk is gone. It was a great scene. Yeah, and I think it worked the other way too. I think it panned the other way when he started smirking. Yeah. So yeah. you're right. It was like it was like a wipe. It was just yeah, it was a very well done. But it did make me wonder if he is time locked into that fate, what ha- what would have happened if he had stayed in the torpedo room? And this also extends further for the rest of his Starfleet career. Will he live fearlessly because he knows, oh, I can't die here. That's not my future. That is something that people have put, used in other science fiction as well. It's like, well, oh God, what's the most recent thing I saw? I don't know if it was Orville or what. I rem- oh, I distinctly remember a show where someone was like, no, it's okay. I can't. I, 
I can do the thing, or I can do this ridiculously crazy, uh, I can do this ridiculously scary or small chance thing because we know I'm not going to die. And, or like, I know I'm not going to die. People didn't believe them. I remember that part being part of the plot. God, I wish I could remember what show it was now. In the book, The Man Who Folded Himself, written by David Gerald, who also wrote The Trouble with Tribbles, this guy has a time travel belt that lets him travel through time. So what, And he's very lonely. So what he does is he goes back in time one day and hangs out with his younger self and eggs him on to do all these dangerous things. And the younger guy is like, what if I die? And the older guy says, you can't die because if you do, I can't be here. And yet I am. Yeah, and that just ties into the whole, there's so many different ways time travel can go. <laughs> right. And as it turns out, they're in, the two characters I'm quoting, their interpretation proves to not be correct as you <laughs> read the rest of the book. But nice. it's a nice idea. Nice. While they're transporting the, the spacesuit Michael Burnham's going to use time travel, Discovery is hit. There's rocks are flying everywhere on board the ship because they always keep them behind the walls. It must be helped weigh the ship down or something. I don't know. But... Um, <laughs> Stamets is falls on is impaled on one, and he's critically injured, and he's brought to sick bay. And this moment is the one moment that had me close to tears again, where Hugh is taking care of Paul, and says like, "I'm home because I'm with you." And it was so sweet. I love this scene so much, and I really don't have much more to say than that, other than I'm so happy this scene was there. In last week's episode, it was Stamets who said. I need to move forward. Forward motion is the way to go. And here he is, unable to respond to Hugh. And Hugh is saying, my home is with you. It almost puts Stamets in an awkward position because Stamets is like, I've moved on. (laughs) And and what if he has? What if there is no reconciliation here? What if it's, as he said, what if there's never going to be a good time? (laughs) Let's see. I don't believe Paul believed himself. I think Paul was saying what he wanted Hugh to hear. And we both speculated, or at least I think I did, I think we both did last week, where I think Hugh was coming to say the opposite last week. Uh, he wanted that he actually wanted to stay, but when Paul went first, Hugh changed his answer. So I agree with you on all those points. That's my interpretation as well. I think that Stamets was just saying what he thought Hugh wanted to hear. Hugh was holding back because he knew that or thought that Stamets wanted something else. And that now that all the cards are on the table, they might find their way back to each other. But... Colbert doesn't know that. <laughs> you know, as far as as far as he knows, Stamets is moving on. Yeah, I mean, he's going to wake up and things are going to be, he's going to have the conversations again. Oh yeah, unless they write that he does remember this. Like, he might be conscious now, but I'm doubting it's going into any kind of long-term memory because he did have his, his, his Paul Stamets like, smirk smile thing while he was kind of starting to go under. Like, he heard him in the moment. Whether he'll remember it is realistically doubtful but plot wise i can see them him remembering kind of like when burnham woke up in sick bay and she's like i had this bizarre dream about my mom but it was just a dream and everybody's like no it was real <laughs> <laughs> but i i overall i i don't like i said i don't have much more to say on this scene other than i'm so glad it was there it was so sweet and so tender and made me happy have you heard this couple referred to as Kalmets? Uh, I have not heard that at all, but I'm all for it. I'm huge into shipping. <laughs> <laughs> I was out with some friends seeing Rift Tracks Live on Thursday night, and one of them said that she really wanted to see Comet's resolution in the season finale. And I was like, you want to see what now? <laughs> <laughs> but sure, I guess that works. Why not? So I really want to talk about Leland 
and Burnham separately. Those are two things I have a lot of questions about. Shall we? Yeah, which one do you want to do first? Let's do Leland. Okay. Yum, yum. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. So that was when Nahan and Georgiou were trying to break through the door into the ready room where Leland is supposedly procuring the sphere data. And she says, when we're done with this, do you want to join me in making Leland scream? And Nahan says, yum, yum. What in the world? The only thing I can think here is this is some kind of reference back on her home planet. <laughs> like, that makes sense in the situation. <laughs> but no, it gets worse. It gets worse because last week there was this hilarious scene with Poe handing Georgiou a bowl of spumoni, right? And so I thought, I you know, this is an action sequence, a lot of things going on. I misheard what Georgiou said, and I thought she said to Nahan, when this is done, do you want to join me in making some ice cream? Uh-huh. <laughs> and then Nahan says, yum, yum. And I'm like, that makes perfect sense. I understand why Nahan would say that, but why is Georgiou so sweet now? <laughs> do you want, and I think about what a non-sequitur that is. Do you want to join me with, in some ice cream when we're done? I'm like, yum, I would love to. <laughs> like, this is not the time to be talking about frozen desserts. <laughs> I mean, it could be. Uh, maybe Nan did miss here. Maybe not. Maybe she misheard. <laughs> Want to enjoy making Leland ice cream? <laughs> or, or, like, imagine when this battle is over and Han goes to Georgiou and says, like, so, shall we get that ice cream you promised? And Georgiou's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Georgiou has some great lines. I have to wonder if she thinks she's funny, though, because sometimes, like, when Leland first comes on screen... And she says, hey, we were just talking about you. Nobody likes you. Congratulations. Like, does she really think she's going to get under Leland's skin with that line? I don't know, but I love it. Congratulations. Everybody hates you. (laughs) (laughs) I loved it, too. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I loved it. But I got to wonder, really? Maybe maybe I I understand her because I think I'm funny. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm confused because when they killed Leland... All of Control was basically dead in the water. All the Section 31 ships. Which implies to me that Control was singularly housed in Leland's body. Which seems odd, because even after Control took over Leland, Control also took over Gant. At that point, it possessed two bodies. And when Gant died, that had no impact on the overall Control infrastructure. And so it seems strange to me that None of those ships would be self-aware without a biological representation or that there wouldn't have been a backup somewhere. It just seems odd to me that an AI could be so easily eradicated. It felt weird to me too. I was like, it's one of those things I feel like we just have to accept. Like, okay, apparently this manifestation of the AI was all housed inside Leland and apparently has a hell of a Wi-Fi signal. can still talk to all his ships uh, and control right. them. <laughs> yeah. It's an AI unlike anything we've ever seen. It's certainly not consistent with, say, for example, Skynet in the Terminator movies. At the end of Terminator 3, they're like, no, there actually is no headquarters. Skynet is software. Yeah. So, hmm. but but then um, in the end, during the debriefing of all the officers, the main officers, um, the, the Starfleet dude's like, yes, we have completely wiped out control. <laughs> like, how do you know this? <laughs> yeah. Like, how can you be sure? It's It was weird to me. 
I, you know, speaking of Leland, I did love the battle sequence between him and Georgiou and Nahan in the variable gravity corridor. See, I walked away with that feeling different. <laughs> tell me about it. Well, here, read it what you liked, and I'll tell you what I didn't like. Well, on one hand, if you're going to cast Michelle Yeoh, you need to have a battle sequence where gravity is variable. I mean, that is one of the things she's best at. And second, I immediately understood how they did this scene because it's the same technique they use in the Fred Astaire film Royal Wedding back in 1951, where he is dancing on the floor and then on the wall and on the ceiling. And when I was watching that director behind the scene blog post or whatever, they showed a clip behind the scenes and that's exactly how they did it, the, the same way here. So I, I got that technique and it was cool to see it come back like 68 years after it was done in Royal Wedding. And yet I think I might know where you're going because although the concept was cool, I felt like the actual fisticuffs were a little lackluster. Uh, you got it exactly. So when I saw this scene, the first thing I thought of was the movie Inception, where there's this huge fight scene in a tumbling hotel hallway. That sounds like you might have remembered that now. I saw that scene as well. And in fact, in that same director blog post, they said, let's do a fight scene like Inception. So you're right. Oh, nice. Okay. Okay. So I did not read that post. That post. And so I really liked it in concept. I love seeing Michelle Yeoh fight. I think she's amazing So for so many reasons. Uh, what felt off about this fight, however, for me, is that this scene needed to be one long take to be effective for me. Having it tumble around and do the jump cuts that are so common cheapens the scene to me. I didn't hate it. It just didn't feel as cool to me as they were going for. And I don't think it worked out like you wanted. Yeah, I could see that. I would, I'm would. i giving this scene an A for effort, but maybe like a B, B minus for execution. I can do that. Plus, it did, ha- yeah. it did have plenty of the rocks that are always everywhere on Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, is this scene the, the last time we see Nahan in this episode? Because... After this, Leland and Georgiou go into the engineering spore control room, and we don't see Nahan. So yeah. I think she got knocked out in this corridor and stayed there. Yeah, I remember thinking that when I watched it first, like, where is she? And second time, I completely forgot. So I must have just like, I must have just committed to memory, like, yeah, she is just knocked unconscious. Because it didn't seem like she was killed unless... No. But uh, yeah, I don't think she's dead, dead. Although Leland certainly seems to be dead, using the technique that Georgiou learned from reading Burnham's notes about how Gant died, which she said at the beginning of last week's episode, so that ties together. And it also reminds me of Terminator 5 Genesis, where, hey, here is a cyborg who's half machine, half human. We're in a hospital. Let's just turn on the MRI and suck out all the computer parts. <laughs> it's basically the same thing. You know, future or all this future techniques to stop using... Um ferromagnetic metals. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is a very good point. Um, What I thought when this scene happened was, one, we saw this before in Discovery, cool. And two, uh, Giorgio is just using an agony booth. (laughs) Oh, oh, that's a good call, which of course was invented by Dr. Phlox. Yeah, it's not it's not like the same, I don't think, idea, but it made me think of Agony Booths. Like, oh, she is totally used to this chamber. We saw them in Discovery, even. We did? And yeah, they were um, being used in the Mirror Universe when... Oh, that's right, Lorca. Yeah, when, when um, Malfoy's dad was walking around uh, freeing his crew. 
That's right. And also, he was in one of the agony booths. That's right. That's right. Himself. So that's it was a fun little callback to me. That's what I thought of. It's like agony booth. Like, oh, this is perfect. <laughs> we also learned that the mirror universe has Sun Tzu, or that George Jude has just become very well read in her time in the Prime Universe. Yeah, you know, the mirror universe is one of those things where a lot of people speculate like timelines diverged at some point, and some people speculate it's just always been that way. And so it's interesting. I wonder. We I don't know if we'll ever get an answer. So that's a good question. There is a TNG novel where Picard goes to the Mirror Enterprise D, and he is in his Mirror counterpart's quarters, and he finds a copy of The Merchant of Venice by Hmm. William Shakespeare, of course. And the lines in that book are different, and they're dark, and they're corrupt. Oh, that's fascinating. Which implies that the Mirror Universe extends all the way back to the 1600s. (laughs) That is such a neat concept. The The Shakespeare's writing is different. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I was actually taking a college Shakespeare course when I read that novel, and I showed it to the professor, and she was so fascinated by that idea that even though she had never seen Star Trek in her life, she went and she bought a copy of that Mirror Universe novel just so that she could show people, look, this is how you can turn Merchant of Venice around just by changing a word or two. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, it was awesome. Before before we jump away from Leland, there's two pieces of dialogue I loved. Let's hear it. Uh, when when Giorgio and Nan break into the room, that, the ready room that he's trying to get the data in, <laughs> she's like, Giorgio's like, Leland, you look well. And Nan's like, yeah, for a couple of batteries and a data course stuffed in a meat sack. <laughs> and, and Giorgio's like, oh, it's like an AI sausage. And she's like, ew. <laughs> And then Leland's response cracked me up because it's the AI going, women, stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And then um, just before the fight scene in the spinning hallway, uh, he's like, where's my data? And I couldn't tell which one yelled it, but they yelled, hell. (laughs) Oh, is that what they said? Yeah. (laughs) Leland says, where can I access my data? And Nahan says, hmm, so many fun ways to answer that question. That's right. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that they are being snarky with an AI who does not care. I I love it. I just love it. I eat that stuff up. And I wish I could have seen more of that snark from Nahan in the past. I know, right? There was a lot of potential there. I feel like there are a lot of characters that we got to know too late. Nahan, Arium, and also Control itself. We didn't see Control evolve. By the time we were introduced to it, it was already a threat. And I would have liked to have known how it gained sentience in the first place before it accessed the sphere data. We don't really have that backstory. Yeah, it would have been cool to see its evolution, but also that would have been spoilers for the episodes before that point. So... I can see why they didn't, but gosh, it would have been neat to see. Yeah. I'm also wondering, since Leland is dead, and and this is going into a different aspect of this episode, did they still need to send the sphere data into the future? I mean, I guess they do. do they, I guess they don't want anybody to have it, but it was specifically control they were trying to keep its hands out of. At that point, they don't know if control has manifested itself anywhere else. And so still got to send it off. True. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, they don't know that it's completely eradicated. Also, one uh, another bridge across the time travel and Leland stories was Burnham saw a future where Leland storms the bridge and shoots everybody in the head. And that future did not happen. Michael wasn't even on the bridge. And I was wondering in last week's Transporter Lock, why would she be on the bridge if she's trying to pilot the Red Angel suit? And so I'm wondering what... I, th- I have a theory, but I'd like to hear yours. 
what changed to make that future not happen? Because he did storm the bridge, but nobody died. You know, I don't know the answer to that. I didn't know what changed either. Because Burnham and Spock said the crystal showed us a possible future so that we could avoid it. And so I think what happened was there was a timeline where Burnham was on the bridge because they didn't have the Red Angel suit. They didn't have the time crystal. They didn't have Poe. All these things that would have happened if they hadn't sent those signals. I think they would have encountered the sphere anyway and acquired the sphere data and control would have come and acquired it themselves. But now that she's gone back in time and create all these ripple effects, that future hasn't happened. I think that's what we were seeing in the time crystal was the pre-signal future. Yeah, I think that fits. Or even if it wasn't pre-signal, or pre-signal, it's just like maybe they got to this point, but for whatever reason didn't have the suit at the point in that alternate future. Or something didn't work out. They didn't have a time crystal. They didn't have... Yeah, so it's the, Jet. Yeah, so it's possible that it's everything was kind of up to same up until that point where one variable changed and... Or, yeah, but I think, yeah, it was just one possible future. And and they needed all the variables to change, basically. Yeah. I'm still not clear, though, how Spock knew where the red signals were going to be because they found his audio diary on the Enterprise and it had a map of the seven signals. My understanding was that he left that log before he went to the ice planet and mind melded with the Red Angel. It was after that that he committed himself to the psychiatric ward. So why did he already know where the red signals were going to be? And he knew that when they were a kid, too, when he was a kid. And that is also confusing to me. Yeah, I don't know where the tie-in is there. I don't know either. I don't know. I was wondering that, too. How is this tie-in to his always being connected to them? I know they made a huge big deal of Michael's mother tying him into this. She picked him specifically. But how does he... I still don't know how the signal locations or signals existences really tie into his knowing that they're there or they exist. The only thing I can think of, and this doesn't make a lot of sense, is that when he mind melded with the Red Angel, due to her being a temporal being, there was a temporal ripple effect that went back to his childhood. And then he started knowing things from the mind meld before the mind meld. But that is a bit of a stretch. Yeah, it was like you've had some kind of temporal parasites from Enterprise. Oh my gosh, I love that episode. Oh my gosh, Twilight is that the name of the episode? I don't. That seems possible, but it's a good episode. And oh man, it's so sad for humanity in more ways than you know because they're on SETI Alpha Five. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that was a great callback. Yeah, it was Twilight, and it was also just so sad that Paul has to explain this to Archer every day for twelve years. Oh. Anyway, that we'll save that for when we spin off Transport Lock to talk about Enterprise. <laughs> you knew we were doing that, right? Uh, all right. Well, <laughs> gives us something to do over the summer. <laughs> That's right. Oh, we'll just do an episode a day until we're caught up. <sighs> okay. So uh, there are a lot of things going on with the Red Angel suit. We're not going to talk about the future that Discovery goes into. We're going to save that for a different episode of Transport Lock. I do still have some more questions, though. It sounds like the suit would not let her jump into the future until she had amended the past to create the timeline that she was in. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. When I first watched the episode, I was still a little confused. But second time, I was like, okay, yeah. She had to put the pieces together, basically make sure everything happened. She had to make the past events happen. So that made sense. I I could go with that. Time travel is fickle. 
when you're doing plots and around it. So I'm like, sure. It does imply to me, though, that the Red Angel suit somehow knew that she hadn't done that yet, that it had some sort of a temporal awareness. I suspect it was less the time suit and more time itself, making sure everything happens as it happened. Okay. I know she says, like, the time suit won't let me jump, or maybe she says, like, I can't jump or it won't let me jump. I think because things hadn't happened yet, so it couldn't, maybe it couldn't do something that hadn't been possible in the reality yet. I Time travel is so tricky when you get into writing about it. Okay, that makes sense. I can see how time might have some sort of a rigid barrier that won't let you advance past a certain point because it doesn't make sense. Kind of like this movie Time Changer that came out in 2002. Terrible film. Also, very evangelical. So it's not for me. Maybe it's for our listeners, which is fine. But it has somebody going... Like They have a time machine, and they put something on the pad, and they set it for 100 years in the future... And the thing will not teleport. The idea being that there is no future 100 years from now. So he sets it to like 90 years, tries to beam it forward. It won't. And he keeps scaling it back to find out when exactly the apocalypse occurs. Because that is the point at which the thing will go forward. Uh Maybe it's a terrible metaphor. But similarly, they couldn't go into the future because that future didn't exist yet until she had corrected the past. Yeah, Spock had even mentioned like this, or I think it was Spock saying something like when he's in the shuttlecraft, like the future hasn't been written yet, or future hasn't been determined yet, or something like that. And so, uh, so maybe I, I'm okay. I'm okay with all the wobbly, timey wimey stuff, just because it's not easy to write about it. Time travel is one of my favorite topics, but even Star Trek's been inconsistent in how it shows it, and I'm I'm okay with that. I'm okay. If <laughs> Star Trek were rigid in its interpretation of time travel, we'd have a lot less variety to the stories. Yeah. Yeah. Like in Star Trek 4, when I go back in time to get the whales, Starfleet would still be destroyed. Earth would still be destroyed or whatever. But when they come back, they created a new reality where it wasn't. And it's like all that, the Back to the Future 2 situation. And so I'm okay with, I'm, yeah, I'm okay. Gives me a headache. We got to see an actual Red Angel time jump in this episode, really for the first time from both sides and throughout. What did you think of that? I thought the effects were amazing. I thought it was so cool. And that and and the callback to the motion picture in here was so neat. So help me with that. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. It's subtle. I didn't catch it because I hadn't seen it in a long time either. I read about it and like I they weren't even specific on what it was a callback to, and I watched the scene the other night on YouTube afterwards. So what the reference is, is when Discovery is going into the wormhole or to the wormhole or through the wormhole, being affected by it. The camera angle, or like the camera special effect they're using is everyone's kind of doing this huge warped, like they're getting faded backwards. Uh, right. In fact, and that's exactly what they did in Star Trek 1 when they accidentally go into a wormhole. That's the exact same Corey effect they did there too. They're going so fast. Time's so weird. Wow. I haven't seen that movie in so long. I forgot that there was a wormhole. Yeah, it was very corny. And <laughs> they just wanted to show off that they had computer technology. Computer graphics in 70 whatever that movie came out <laughs> it's like it made no sense in star trek how that happened but they just wanted to show that they have we have cgi now but anyway uh the callback was really cool going into a wormhole the same effect but the whole like the whole like trying to show us going through a wormhole like breaking the fourth dimension like going from a 3d plane to like 2d and dropping like a fourth dimension it was so cool it was so neat that was my favorite spot. Just after she initiates the jump, time freezes and she gets to observe the battle scene. And that was okay for me. But then 
space became two dimensional and she punched a hole through it. And I loved that. I thought that was so amazing. Yes. But what I did not like about this whole part was the five minutes of clip show showing things we've already seen. (laughs) I was so bored. I'm like, this is taking so long. Like, I know you were there. I know, but I don't need to see the scene again. I can just watch the episodes again. I can watch the recap before this episode. Like, well, it did clarify for me scenes where we thought the Red Angel was her mom was in fact her. Yeah, I mean, that, that's about it. Like, I did it once and like, cool, I don't need to see it all five times to me. That's just me. I, I thought it went on way too long. We saw a current, Burnham, if you want to call her that, go into the past onto the Hiawatha's asteroid and see herself getting impaled in the leg. So we know that that was the first time past Burnham saw the Red Angel and it was in fact her future self. However... It was the Red Angel's appearance in that moment that led Spock to theorize that the Red Angel shows up whenever Burnham's life is threatened, which gave them the plan to strap Burnham into a chair and kill herself to make the Red Angel show up. This seems to imply to me that that theory was flawed because that is not why the Red Angel showed up on the asteroid. Oh, absolutely. So this means that they put her life in danger without grounds, and it was just happenstance that her mom showed up to save her yeah uh the the whole predestination stuff gets a little weird (laughs) yeah yeah spock was wrong however spock did give us when he was outlining why all the signals appeared where they did he said and one appeared over terralysium so that we can find safe harbor when we arrive in the future i was like oh that's why you did that which, which also means, like, way back at the beginning of the season, when you and I were recording Transporter Log, I theorized that the Red Angel had made those asteroids fall on New Eden as a test to make Discovery save it. And now we know that was a naturally occurring phenomenon, and that if Discovery hadn't saved them, then her mom, and eventually Discovery itself, wouldn't have somewhere to go when they arrive in the future. So they were creating the safe space. Yes. So, I mean, because even just last week, I was asking you, okay, they need the time crystal, they need Poe to power it, they need Jet to activate it, they need the Kelpians to be evolved. Why do they need New Eden? And now we know. We kind of knew, but never confirmed, I would say. I had no theories as to why New Eden was a part of this whole thing. So we've talked about Burnham and her time signal jumps, and we talked about Leland and the space battles and the Klingons. We're going to be talking more next week on Transporter Lock about where Discovery ends up. But we've gone through all my notes. What else about Such Sweet Sorrow Part 2 caught your attention, Brie? Oh, so when I first watched it, oh my god. The times when Spock and Michael would just stand there and talk and talk and talk. I, all I could think of was, people are dying <laughs> and it's not that i didn't want them to have this emotional thing in the second viewing i you know like i said a few days later i you know come to okay with it but when i'm watching it the first time i was like come on get on with it well that was one of my biggest objections to last week's episode also was that control is going to be here any minute the red suit is not assembled yet and you're all standing around on the bridge saying goodbye where are you finding the time for this so yeah this this was this week. It was me. It was get on with it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was just the, I liked the Spock and Michael scenes. Uh, like I said, on a second viewing and over time. But when I like I said when it first aired, I was just like, no, this is not what you are in a hurry. People are dying because of you. Um, quick lollygagging. 
Um. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's a cinematic trope that time stands still when important things need to be said. Exactly. It's just more difficult to push that when you're talking about time. <laughs> It's true. This is true. Yeah. Um, I was surprised that Control was not making a bigger effort to wipe Burnham out. I mean, she was. She and Spock were just standing on that derelict ship out in the middle of nowhere, unaccosted relatively. Yeah, for whatever reason, Leland's ships were not watching for her. I thought that too. It's like, this is a little weird. The only time they seemed to be under threat, but felt like a random uh, torpedo or phaser shot in their direction. Yeah, I agree. That did not seem intentional. Whereas Arium had said, Control wanted me to kill you. This is all because of you. I, I felt like Control's focus on Burnham wavered. And I don't understand why. Yeah. Oh, okay. So also when I walked away with, when I walked away from this episode, I'm like, okay, so this this felt like a series finale to me, not an episode finale to me, or season finale. Yes. And yes. when I walked away from this, when they started doing the mission debriefings, back at Starfleet Command, I walked away thinking like, I know we have to explain away the spore drive. And I guess we have to explain why Michael isn't mentioned ever again. But I don't, I, when I watched first watch the episode, I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't expecting or feeling, I wasn't needing that answer so soon. I didn't expect it to be coming so soon. Uh, I thought that we were just going to have more discovery in the timeline that they were in. I walked away just feeling like, I guess that's an answer I knew was coming, but I wasn't needing it yet. Yeah, I think discovery of the show is going to be very different from here on out. And for some reason, even though they've been talking about saying discovery into the future, and last week the crew announced that they were going to stay on discovery as well, I don't think I fully appreciate the implications for the series when they were talking about that. And I don't know what to expect next season, which we'll be talking about later. Yeah, I guess that would be, I didn't expect it to be a series-changing season finale. Because uh, I, I wasn't expecting, I didn't feel a need for it yet. I mean, I'm okay with it. I just didn't feel a need for it. What I thought at the end of this episode is that if they went from this being a Discovery series to this being a Pike series, that was a seamless transition. And they totally could have done that the way this episode ended. Yeah, yeah. Which I would not have objected to. Like, if we never saw Discovery again, I'd feel sad. But they accomplished their mission, and now we get to adventure with Ethan Peck and Anson Mount and Rebecca Roman, which is awesome. Yeah, more number one, please. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, let's see. I did like it when each of the debrief characters had to state their name. We had Captain Christopher Pike, Spock, and number one. <laughs> However, mm. and I do not hear in either viewing of the episode. I was watching for it. And I didn't hear it or see it. Pike calls number one by her first name at some point. What? Yeah, it's um, uh, Yuda. They they canonized something that was in a book. Huh. The Wikipedia. Someone's changed it to Yuna, known as number one. So I'm reading an interview on Truck Corps with season three co-showrunner Michelle Paradise, and she confirms that in the season finale, Pike called her Una. Or Yuna. I did not see or hear that. I Sometimes when I rewatch the episode, I turn closed captions on, but I only watch specific scenes on my second viewing, and apparently I did not see that scene. So neither. Yeah. Huh. But she didn't use that name when she was debriefed. Nope. Number one. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Uh, we also got the answer to the Section 31 problem. 
Relatively, yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, know, I know that they thought that was satisfactory. I'm a little wishy-washy about it. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it mattered the identity of the person who was doing the debriefings? Because they never showed his face. They didn't show. And I, I was wondering that the first viewing, second viewing, I was like, okay, this person long-term isn't relevant. So we're not going to face. I mean, they, they pull that in a lot of shows like, or even like animated shows. If someone isn't important to the story, they don't animate or draw their face or show everything. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes it's like, this is an evil person, but this person didn't feel like they're going for an evil tone. And so I don't think it mattered that they didn't show. I think it was just supposed to be a mindless, this is Starfleet doing its job, mission debriefing. I think that's what they're going for. And that's what I walked away with. Uh, so, but we'll see, I guess, maybe Section 31 show. We got to see Ethan Peck become a more traditional Spock in appearance at the end. And when he steps on the bridge, they find that last signal about four months after Discovery disappeared. But it's 51,000 light years away. That's Terralysium, right? They just said Beta Quadrant, I thought. Remember, when the second signal showed up earlier in the season, it was so far away that they had to spore drive to get there. Mm-hmm. So I think that's Terralysium. However, if they are observing the signal visually, and it's 51,000 light years <laughs> away, then that means that Burnham had to jump back in time 51,000 years and cause that signal in order for it to be seen today by the Enterprise. Uh well, then we had to question all these other moments, too, when we've seen the, the, the signals. I'm going to say, apparently there's some kind of di- time dilation effect going on with these signals. <laughs> Remember that very first signal, they had to do like a time shift to triangulate its position. They're like, hey, maybe let's go to warp for two seconds, and then we can figure out where it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, some of these things, like you start thinking about it too deeply, it's like, oh, it falls apart. So then you have to like, go explaining away like, there's some kind of time, timeliness to the time thing to this signal. <laughs> like, yeah, it's weird. How can we host a Star Trek podcast without thinking about Star Trek? <laughs> uh, I didn't say I wasn't thinking about it. <laughs> but they don't want us to, and that's a problem. Yeah. Uh, and my last note for this episode. Yes. They started doing it just before the end credits, but predominantly in the end credits, they blended the original series uh, and end credits music with Discovery's music in such an amazing way. And if you have didn't catch it, I would strongly suggest you go back and listen to the last like minute of the show or just before the credits roll. They, that's when they start. You know, I did catch that, but since I never watched the next episode preview after which the credits roll, I have not seen the credits all season. So I wasn't sure if this was a new thing or just something that I've been missing. Uh, okay. So yeah. Awesome. Maybe maybe they'll put it on the soundtrack. Yeah. Oh my god. And and this well, I re- I watched it with intent again this time. I got caught it the first time on Thursday when I watched. But here when I watched, I was listening and like the way. I don't know if they changed the music somehow or if I can't remember the gentleman who wrote Discovery's music's name now. But um, they, they he wrote it in such a way that it actually mimics the original series in a theme even more in like when there are certain breaks in the music. And what if like that? So like he tied this closer to the original series uh, music when he wrote the Discovery one that I even realized besides the little riff at the very end. Like he matched like this section is this long in the original series song. So this section is this long in the Discovery song and whatnot in such a way. I was like, wow, this goes deeper than I knew because I'm not a music theorologist, (laughs) music theory person. All right, well, this has been an extra long episode of Transporter Lock fitting for the season finale. An extra long episode, too. So, 
Yeah, that's true. We'll be talking more about aspects of this finale and the next season and all of the second season next week when we have a special returning guest to transport a lock. Any closing remarks until then? No, not at all. (laughs) Well then, for the very last time, since we seem to have a different captain every season... Hit it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. Hey, I sausage. Ew. <laughs> we haven't stopped talking. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha.